Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by Professor Gary Tomlinson. This opening 2011 Schulman Lecture in Science and the Humanities is entitled Paleolithic Formulism and the Emergence of Music. Music the ineffable, music the transcendent, music the noumenal, music the limit eclipsing language, music the play of pure structure, music the model of a mobile formalism to which all other arts aspire. These are old familiar themes with roots reaching deep in European thought all the way down to Plato. They take their modern shape, however, only in much more recent times, especially in the wake of Kant, like Plato, no un unambivalent friend of music. In his third critique, he could find in instrumental music only a play of pure form, and hence a beauty that was free, morally unbound, and therefore suspect. Kant's 19th century followers would elaborate his formalism while turning away, usually, from his moral judgment. The names here are many, some large in stature, Schopenhauer, Wagner, Nietzsche, others less so, the Viennese music critic Eduard Hanslick, the Darwinian Beethoven exegete Edmund Gurney, and Walter Pater, author of that famous bon mot about the other arts' musical aspirations. The mystique of musical form all these writers fostered can still be followed through the 20th century, now in positions staggeringly diverse, in Suzanne Langer's New Key for Philosophy, in Adorno's musical diagnosis of bourgeois subjectivity, even in Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus, recycling more than they might have admitted the modernism of Boulez, and what is modernism, as my long-ago colleague uh, Leonard Meyer used to say, but late, late romanticism. These 19th and 20th century positions riveted musicology for a long time, so long, indeed, that the suspicion had to arise that the discipline as a whole, my discipline, took off from them in the first place. The formalist priorities they determined gave pride of place to instrumental music, especially in the German tradition from Bach to Schoenberg. Opera studies, to cite one area swimming against the mainstream, had to await the 1970s and 80s to gain much traction. This orientation set in even before musicology itself. Echt formalist Hanslick, among others, pointed the way. With it came a series of questions about musical expression and semiosis, questions usually answered by distancing music from language's symbolic nature. Both the distancing and the formalism tended to rely sorry, my paper is slipping here, tended to rely on idealist philosophies. The musical ineffable came to celebrate music's purity of formal design and its autonomy from broader discourse and ideology. A few years ago, Richard Taruskin denounced this idealism as one of several shop-worn heirlooms of German romanticism that held disastrous dehumanizing consequences for the 20th century. I can sympathize with Taruskin's ardor, but it will become clear as my talk unfolds that I do not raise music's ineffable formalism in order to bury it. On the contrary, I'll try to unearth its deep history, for I think there is, underneath the rickety romantic scaffolding holding it up, a foundation of insight into the conditions of music. And not just the music of the European elite over these last centuries, but human musicking in a much broader view and across the longest of long durée. The recent formalisms I've begun with, in other words, can be seen to reflect dimly the aboriginal conditions from which music emerged in the first place. The Paleolithic of my title is no euphemism. To gain a vantage from which we might glimpse this huge vista, we'll need to counter the musical autonomy to which most of these recent positions were committed. To reverse the polarity, so to speak, of their formalism, 
we'll need to approach the mysteries of musical effect through material embodied engagements rather than from the realm of pure forms. We'll need, in other words, to materialize ineffability. Perhaps this is the direction pointed by Vladimir Yankelevich, uh, by Vladimir Yankelevich's Music and the, and the Ineffable, a book from the 1960s that has recently gained a new prominence in Anglo-American musicological circles. It has surfaced in part because it anticipated recent trends in music, musical studies that together have been called the practice turn, a phrase meant to echo the linguistic turn of the mid-20th century. Yankelevich traces an embodied non-idealist path towards his ineffable. Combating romantic ideas of musical expression, he writes, to imagine a composer straining to express something as analogous to an organist who has everything, stops, pedals, and keyboards at his sovereign disposal, is to fail to recognize the effect of the tool on the worker, what one could call a reverse shock. There stands behind this gesture, which Yankalevich repeats several times in his brief book, something foreign to romantic transcendence, a material presence at the heart of the ineffable, or, better put, an emergence of the ineffable from the material affordances the performing body meets. That mystery vibrating in black keys and white keys, as Yankalevich puts and put it, the mystery of six sharps under the fingers. We move not inward here, into the soul and beyond, to invisible realms. Instead, the ineffable is discovered in haptic experience, in a prosthetic extension of the body out into material engagements, into things. This unfamiliar amalgam, this transcendental thingishness, has a long history, as we'll see. Yankelevich connects his material ineffability back to Bergson, and we can see behind it also Merleau-Ponty and Heidegger. But I sense another strain of thought lurking here, one that will point to the long view of musical formalism and ineffability that is my topic today. From the 1930s to the 1960s, when Yankelevich wrote, French archaeologists, poring over the rich remains of Paleolithic societies in their own backyards, pioneered a new view of material analysis of the deep human past. Faced with thousands of generations of shifting stone technologies, they began to describe a tandem evolution of stone materials and human makers, a slow development in which technology and technologist, the maid and the maker, each shaped the other. They began, in other words, to piece together the deep history of that reverse shock named by Yankalevich, the hand and brain formed by the tool. At the heart of this endeavor was the anthropologist and archaeologist André Lois Gouron. In several books from the 1940s to the 1960s, he extended a theory of technological development deep into the history of hominin evolution. He discerned the chaîne opératoire, the operational sequences involved in ancient toolmaking, and from them gauged the shifting materiality, sociality, and biology of our ancestors. Most of the specifics of these books have been long superseded. Of course, Paleolithic archaeology is, is a quickly turning field. But Luaguran's analytic of material engagement remains basic. Especially relevant here today will be what he called technical tendencies, Dynamics internal to technical systems that organize themselves and unfold in ways that shape human agency as much as being shaped by it. Self-organizing systems make up another theme to which I'll return. Yankelevich, in his notion of a musical experience marking the effect of the tool on the body, points toward such technical tendencies, toward the deepest connections of brains, bodies, and material affordances in the musical transaction. This is, I think, his reflection of the archaeology that seemed in his day almost a French patrimony. But it is a distanced reflection, as best I can tell. 
What Yankelevich perhaps did not notice is that in order to illumine these connections and thereby music itself, it's not enough to look back 40 years to Bergson or even to enter into a 200-year Kantian discourse. We need at least an additional 40,000 years of perspective. If we extend our gaze this far, we begin to discern the inevitability of certain patterns that can have, in shorter views, the appearance of ideological construct or cultural paradigm. We begin to appreciate the inevitability of ineffability. We'll see, by the way, that my inevitability here is anything but a surrender to biological determinism. In fact, in extending our perspective in this fashion, we can do more. We can see the emergence of formalistic patterns in music that both link it to and distinguish it from the human language that coalesced alongside it. We can follow music taking shape from interactions with environmental affordances in such a way that its effects could only be tightly bound to materiality and embodiment. We can even make out how this material formalism brought music into a special relation with the nascence in the human imagination of supersensible realms and religion. To reach this endpoint, and to do so in the next half hour at that, will call for some fast footwork. So here, in telegraphic form, are some starting points, axioms I hold to be self-evident regarding the emergence of complex modern human behaviors such as language and music. First, at a deep level, these behaviors depend on capacities that are universal and innate or hardwired. This hardwiring, however, is not narrowly prescriptive of behaviors. It can sponsor a huge variety of behavioral output since hominin evolution over at least a few hundred thousand years has enhanced human abilities to express malleably many genomic default settings. Another way of putting this is to say that human phenotypes are much less closely governed by genotypes than those of any other species. This situation is the outcome of a coevolution of genes and behavior, a coevolution defined by a feedback loop whereby a species' interactions with the external world alter that world, thus reconstructing the species' niche in it. And this alteration, in turn, feeds back and alters the selective pressures acting on the species. Though it is a broad and fundamental evolutionary dynamic, this coevolution that I've just defined takes on particular features in the hominin lineage. First, since it starts on the one side from organismal interactions with the material affordances of an environment, it is for humans, to a unique degree, technological in nature. Second, given that hominin technologies entered into their own feedback relations with hominin sociality over the last two million years or so, this technological coevolution is fundamentally social. Social and ecological affordances are intertwined, even indistinguishable, across the deepest human history. And third, given the learned behavior, given that learned behavior passed down across generations characterizes hominin sociality over much of these two million years, hominin coevolution is, again, to a unique degree, cultural. Hominin evolution, in other words, is a special variety of biocultural coevolution. A few more axioms concern specifically the emergence of human behaviors such as language and music. First, the manifold complexity of such behaviors, marshalling many different capacities, suggests that their deep histories were incremental, step-by-step -step processes. This, in turn, suggests that the coevolution of such behaviors is historically deep. We must look very far back before musicking or language in, or in their modern forms in order to understand how they emerged. This incremental imperative counters all simple adaptive models for complex behaviors. The idea, for example, of music 
in general, music in general as an adaptation, an idea taken up in, in much work across the last decades, is inevitably either an unwitting simplification of a complicated incremental history or else a straw man. These axioms describe hominin coevolution in a way that is fairly uncontroversial these days. Call it a post-neo-Darwinian consensus. Now, however, the story gets more complicated and the implications for an expansion of neo-Darwinian mechanisms more radical. I've just implicitly defined culture very broadly as the transmitting to future generations of information learned and accumulated in a lifetime. Such cultural patterning has a long, rich history in our hominin forebears. It qualitatively shifts the nature of the feedback loops of coevolution, since it inserts the in, sorry, since it inserts information of a special sort into these loops, information outside the genome. For hominins and some few other animals, that is, it's not just innate but also learned intergenerational patterns that alter their niche and thereby reshape the selective pressures on them. Hominins are uniquely adept, as philosopher Kim Sterelny has emphasized, in accumulating these intergenerational archives of behavior. And this special status reaches back far in the lineage. These cultural archives bring a new degree and kind of complexity to hominin coevolution. Specific systems of information passed through generations can give rise to their own internal developmental tendencies and vectors, depending on the cognitive, bodily, and environmental constraints they involve. The technical tendencies of Lua Guran long ago pointed to, to uh, long, sorry, that he long ago pointed to provide an example of such vectors, and I'll point to several more examples later on. Once formed, such internal informational dynamics can exercise their own conditions and constraints on the evolutionary, hoop, on the evolutionary loops that they enter. We may think of these systems as networks of conditions shaping in certain ways the feedback loops of niche construction. Their dynamics, organized more or less independently of the coevolutionary feedback loop, can provide not merely an additional strand in that loop, but other external loops outside it, sprouting like Ptolemaic epicycles on cycles from cultural transmission and accumulated archives of behavior. The output of these epicycles, then, can feed forward into the broader feedback systems. Note, however, that they are not genetic. Their information stands outside the genome with its own cultural means of transmission. They do not pose a neo-Lamarckian development in which learned behavior is assimilated as such into the genome. The intrusion of these systems of acquired cultural information makes it impossible to conceive biocultural coevolution as a single niche-constructing feedback loop, no matter how broad and rich. We need, instead, more complex models, more complex indeed than have yet been fully described, and such description is today regarded by many as the main path forward in evolutionary theory. These models, to summarize, will need to entail not only natural selective processes, the direct feedback onto these selective processes of the environment altered by organisms, and ontogenetic developmental conditions and constraints of organisms. To all this, we will need to add further epicyclic informational loops. The feedback and feed-forward interactions among these epicycles and cycles will define conditions under which still further vectors, systems, and forces appear. They might even create new modes of emergence itself new metasystemic constraints on the interactions of the loops involved. This view of coevolution has taken shape from many contributions over the last decades by thinkers as diverse as physicist Ilya Prigozhin, biologist Stuart Kaufman, developmental systems theorist Susan Oyama, 
and the versatile Manuel de Landa, who might best be described as a theorist of non-linearity. In neo-Darwinian level evolutionary theory, the view has been developed in several subtly different versions by Kaufman, by Peter Richardson and Robert Boyd, and by Eva Jablonka and her various co-authors, among others. Perhaps the fullest application of such thinking to human evolution is the work of biologist and anthropologist Terence Deacon. I borrowed much from him in my summary just now. In two decades of work, Deacon has attempted to understand the emergence of human language according to this enriched neo-Darwinism. Crucial to this emergence for him is the burgeoning of symbolic cognition, and he proposes that this burgeoning reflects the formation of independent, uh, of, uh, the, the, reflects the formation of, of an independent informational loop, generating its own organizational impulses, and feeding forward then into the broader loops of coevolution. I want to pause over Deacon's symbolic epicycle, as I call it, for two reasons. First, because it illuminates the working of his biocultural evolution, and second, because its symbolism is absent from music and points to a divergence in the deep histories of music and language that we'll explore later on. Deacon begins his analysis of the symbolic epicycle from the well-known tripartite division of signs of Charles Sanders Peirce into icons, indexes, and symbols. A brief review, icons, look like the things they represent. Indexes are associated with the things they represent as smoke is associated with fire. Symbols have an arbitrary or conventional relation to the things they represent as words. So Deacon begins with this, this tripartite division, but he turns the division in the direction of animal perception on the broadest scale. The perception of iconic similarity is shared by a huge array of cognizant species and involves a passive non-registering of difference. Iconism, that is, is a default mode of animal perception against which markings of difference loom as stimuli to action. The perception of indexical association, or proximity, next, is a mode found in far fewer species since it involves learning from past experience to connect distinct perceptions, smoke and fire, again, to take the famous example. Through this learning, remembered contiguities and associations, proximities, can be applied to present circumstances. This results in a matching that is itself iconic of present and past associations. A bundle of things here, smoke and fire, matched to a bundle here, even if the bundle here is incomplete. Smoke only, for instance, you supply the fire. Uh, that's the iconic relationship that is built into indexical, indexical learning. In effect, then, learning enables some species to kick iconic perception onto a higher level, yielding indexical association. Indexical perception depends on a logically and biologically prior iconic perception. The leap to symbolism then requires something more, and it is so rare as to have been achieved in the world today only by humans and some very few animals they have trained. As associative, as associative indexes multiply, are learned and accumulated, there arrives a point of phase transition in cognition. This comes about in part as a manifestation of enhanced learning capacities, in part as a mnemonic alleviation of the overloading of memory involved in all that accumulation of indexes. The phase transition takes the form of a recoding, as Deacon calls it, whereby the accumulated indexes are perceived to form and circulate in a system of their own. At this transition, the systematicity itself of the collected signs comes to govern their meaning. Their referentiality reflects their difference from and deployment in relation to other signs. They have become, in other words, symbols. Moreover, this recoding requires those relations of governance among the symbols it generates. 
Syntax, a system of governance, appears alongside symbols, indeed is co-created with them. These different modes of semiosis are related in a hierarchy, then, whereby indexicality depends on iconism and symbolism depends on both. But the advent of symbolic syntactic systems also brings something new to this arrangement, a new kind of hierarchy, a combinatorial regimen in which individual components are joined according to syntactic rules into larger informational units. Symbol, syntax, and combinatoriality together define the independent dynamic of the symbolic epicycle. All this feeds into the complexities of biocultural coevolution. We can see these now in a brighter light. Advanced hominin sociality entered into niche-constructing feedback loops long before modern language could have existed. This is clear from archaeological and other evidence. In this process, sociality altered the environment, emphasizing some selective pressures and de-emphasizing others. Some behaviors came to be more, more than before the target of selective pressures, while other behaviors were set loose, so to speak, as sociality altered the lived ecosystem so that they played a smaller role in reproduction. This masking and unmasking of selective pressures probably had several consequences. First, behaviors once differentiated so as to answer selective pressures could, when those pressures were relaxed, degrade in a process biologists call de-differentiation. Second, these loosed behaviors could be offloaded, as Deacon puts it, to become an aspect of social transmission and culture less closely determined than before by innate templates. Next, in this offloading and cultural transmission, these behaviors could burgeon in variety and complexity. That is, biological de-differentiation could lead to cultural diversification. All these patterns can set in quickly and indeed have been observed in species long domesticated by humans where our, decisions, where our decisions govern reproduction, masking selective pressures that would be felt in the wild. Finally, the cultural diversification of behaviors uncoupled from selective pressures can give rise to new epicycles, new cultural loops with their own emergent dynamics and these can feed forward into the loops of niche construction, redoubling its intricacies and altering its selective pressures. Deacon sees all these processes as involved in the coalescing of language. He thinks of Homo sapiens itself as a species self-domesticated through culture. Hominin sociality and culture more and more decoupled vocalization from selective pressures. The innate vocalizations of our ancestors, analogous to the calls of monkeys and apes today, de-differentiated, losing innately specified function, functions and gaining the possibility of cultural transmission and diversification. At some relatively late point in this diversification, the symbolic threshold was crossed and a new epicycle created. This altered coevolution then reshaped not only phylogeny but also ontogeny. The advantages of symbolic communication selected neither for symbols lodged in the brain nor for a Chomskyan universal grammar of any great specificity. This is not again a neo-Lamarckian model. Instead, these advantages selected for a brain that, in the course of its development in an individual lifespan, would facilitate the learning of all it needed to make inevitable its own leap into symbolism and syntax. I come at last to music. The challenge involved in proposing a plausible model for the emergence of human musicking, as I see it, involves drawing evidence from several areas into the enhanced neo-Darwinian framework I've described. In this effort, archaeological and paleontological findings will be crucial, of course. Music cognition studies, music theory, and ethnomusicology, meanwhile, have in their different ways begun to indicate some of the universal capacities underlying human musicking. 
Cognitive studies in particular have helped to tease apart distinct capacities involving rhythm, pitch, and timbre. This is an essential step in attempting to discern incremental stages in a deep history. Primatology and a more general ethology will also play a role, especially in offering analogs to the proto-linguistic and proto-musical dimensions of hominin communication. And from all this, a deep incremental history of human musicing can take shape, speculative, of course, but more detailed and nuanced than ever before. Archaeological evidence reveals that musical capacities had assumed something generally like, and I do mean generally, like their modern form by about 40,000 years ago. This date, I think, will be pushed back with new finds, given that the early flute-like artifacts on Earth so far are of a sophistication suggesting a prolonged uh, development before them. This places the coalescing of various proto-musical capacities in the period that, by most estimates, also witnessed the coalescing of modern language and the appearance of, modern, of, the, of a modern imagination, a topic I'll come back to. These fundamental aspects of modern humanity intersected with the advanced stage attained at this period in a much longer history of technology. All four of these, language and its symbolism, music, technology, and a supersensible imaginary, all four of these took off from coevolutionary trends and exerted their own particular forces back onto them. All four created their own epicyclic mechanisms. In the remainder of this talk, I'll describe a few of the musical epicycles and, and give a rough overview of their development and chronology. In the process, I'll suggest the proto-musical histories of massed selection and offloading to cultural transmission that gave rise to them. I'll outline their specific internal dynamics, and I'll relate them broadly to the other complex behaviors I've just named. The word entrainment refers to the linked synchrony of any two repeating cyclic phenomena. Such synchronies are pervasive in both biological and non-biological realms. Think, for example, of a flower folding up at night or the tides and the revolutions of the moon. Human social entrainment arises when cyclical rhythms come to be synchronized between or among individuals. It reaches to deep levels of cognitive function involving involuntary biological rhythms. But it also taps uniquely human capacities for shared attention and for the ascribing to others of recognizable intention, what is sometimes called theory of mind. Such entrainment organizes human sociality in broad and unfocused ways, the loose rhythms of turn-taking and discourse, for example. But social entrainment also operates in more focused forms, and the most focused of all, arguably, is the coordination of bodies and brains and brains in metric musicking. This involves the perception of rhythmic regularity in external events, the prediction of continued regularity, and the coordination of motor activities to it. For humans after about four or five years of age, this is a fairly simple matter. Indeed, indeed, recent evidence suggests that even neonates perceive regularity in pulses and cycle of, cycles of pulses, uh, though they, they can't, of course, shape motor behavior to them. But viewed in a broader biological context, such focused and, train, and training ability is astonishing and all but unique in, to Homo sapiens in the world today. Human musical entrainment involves not only the neocortex, but also the basal ganglia, a deep brain structure also implicated in motor control, timing, and the sequencing of patterned activities. This suggests deep, a, a deep brain connection to the gathering complexities of social interaction and technology across more than a million years of hominin evolution. I've argued elsewhere that we can follow in, in the history of stone toolmaking, and specifically in the mimetic capacities needed to transmit its more and more intricate forms from one individual to another, that we can follow in this the emergence of precise and training capacities that would later underlie musicking. 
During this long period, these imitative abilities were gradually offloaded into cultural transmission, slowly at first, then more quickly, probably in part under the influence of the internal dynamics of the technologies themselves, certainly in part under the influence of the, of the, of the burgeoning complex sociality that came along with, with, uh, with theory of mind as it, as it, as it, as it itself burgeoned. Along the way, these attentional capacities and theory of mind um, uh, came along with technological mimesis and developed alongside technological mimesis, I think. Now, as extraordinary as this development was, musical entrainment required something more. Its modern default form is characterized by the division of long durations into multi-level nestings of shorter ones, a statement I take to apply to metrical musical perceptions across an immense range of human experience. These nestings of varied durations indicate a multi-level cognition ostensibly similar to the one Deacon describes for language. They indicate, that is, hierarchic cognition. There's growing evidence that their perception, in fact, relies on neural firings synchronized in simple integer ratios. But note that there is in metric entrainment no language-like semiosis, hence no indexicality or symbolism. This entrainment comes about from coordination to a system of information without reference beyond itself. It manifests an informational hierarchy transmitted as a mode of shared attention and tied directly to a heritage of bodily motions. It was probably not the case then that the symbolic processing of language was required before something like musical entrainment could fall into place. It seems more likely that musical entrainment and the capacities underlying it coalesced from the experiences of material affordances that had long been honing more and more focused synchronies. This coalescing seems to have given rise to a self-organizing dynamic, an entrainment epicycle, that finally could gather technical mimeses of greater and greater intricacy and precision under the umbrella of rhythmic hierarchy. The offloading of technological mimesis to culture led to a secondary offloading of technological precision to embodied synchronies loosed from technology. Remembering Deacon's symbolic leap, we may propose, at a closer proximity to material disciplines of the body, a metrical leap, a phase transition to action systematized through temporal hierarchy. We can also, I think, specify the moment in the history of lithic technologies when this hierarchic cognizing of time began to emerge in material practice. About 250 to 300,000 years ago, a set of qualitatively new approaches to stone napping took shape, not only among pre-modern humans in Africa, but also among Neanderthals in Europe. These technologies structured implements through a hierarchic operational sequence, that is, a set of patterned motions divided temporarily into different categories of gestures. Such sequences, the foremost of which archaeologists gather uh, under the name Levallois, such sequences represent, in my view, the first crystallizing in the archaeological record of systematic multi-level cognition. They place this advent well before the final coalescing of modern language, and they associate it unequivocally, unequivocally with a human species, the Neanderthals, that all evidence suggests did not possess such language. In short, hierarchic formalism did not await language and was more proximate than it to a prehistory of material engagement. A communicative means all early hominin species no doubt did possess comprised more or less innate vocalized gestures like those of apes and monkeys today. I've already mentioned these as a precursor to language. Extrapolating from modern ethological evidence, we may assume that in social interaction, these vocalizations manipulated nearby individu individuals through emotional expression and appeal. Remnants of these gesture calls, as Robbins Burling has called them, survive in many aspects of human communication today. 
in innate vocalized expressions such as sobs, laughs, and groans, and also in the prosodic intonational contours of speech itself. In both cases, the deep connection to emotional expression remains. Another remnant of these gesture calls in music is our capacity to grasp general intonational contours of melodies. Much evidence suggests that this is closely related in brain function to the prosodic aspects of language, and like that prosody, to the ancient gesture calls. As the intricacies of hominin sociality increased, they must have provided alternative means to fulfill the gesture call's manipulative functions. In ape social organization today, we can witness modest analogs of some of these alternatives. In the presence of alternatives, the calls were in part offloaded into cultural transmission, leading to a de-differentiation of the innate controls on them, and then to a cultural diversification of prosodic emotive expression itself. The communicative advantages offered by more numerous and varied calls fed forward into a social ecosystem selecting for brains and auditory and vocal channels more and more capable of producing and distinguishing the calls, more and more capable, in other words, of versatility of prosodic expression. One channel, uh, channel along which this no doubt moved in tandem with the growth of shared attention and theory of mind was toward pointing or deictic gestures, indexical signs that could be gestural or vocalized. With these, we inch toward Deacon's symbolic threshold. Emotive prosodic shapes themselves, however, never underwent a similar phase transition. To this day, they are not subject to the combinatorial structuring marked elsewhere in language. They are, as Burling has usefully put it, analog rather than digital modes in human communication. But their analog modes mapped in extremely diverse and complex ways onto not one but two different digital systems, word formation and syntax in language, and the pitch structures of music. Here, the emergent pathways of language and music diverge as each spawned its own parallel coevolutionary dynamic. I suggested just now that the process that finally led to the symbolic leap in language took off from the manipulative meanings of gesture calls decoupled from selective pressures. In a similar way, I think, the foremost combinatorial aspect of music, discrete pitch processing, reaches back to the decoupling of the emotive prosodic intonational patterns themselves. In both language and music, distinct epicycles formed from earlier, simpler feedback cycles. In each case, the internal dynamics of these epicycles gave rise to combinatorial processing. For language, this combinatoriality was the structural expression of the systematicity of symbolism. For music, instead, it brought this structuring to a different set of components, discrete pitches. The discrete pitch epicycle marshaled basic perceptual capacities and redirected them under the strength of its own emergent dynamic. These capacities included, in the first place, the sensation of pitch itself, not perceived in all vibrating bodies, but only in those whose overtones are related to their fundamentals in simple integer ratios. This simplicity seems to induce a, synchronic, a, a synchrony in the firing of auditory neurons that melds harmonic complexities into a percept focused on the fundamental at hand. We hear pitch, not noise. Note here the similarity to the neuronal mechanism that seems to stand behind entrainment. We might trace in this similarity the dependence of pitch perception on the long-term honing of entrainment capacity, as I've already outlined a deep crossover in evolutionary development between two aspects of music that we tend to regard as fundamentally distinct, its time and pitch axes. Some other internal constraints of the discrete pitch epicycle followed from these neuronal synchronies. 
The perception of octave equivalence, that is the overwhelming perceptual similarity of pitches whose frequencies relate in a two to one ratio, seems to arise directly from synchronized neural firing. And by the way, it extends somewhat beyond human uh, uh, homo sapiens in the world today. At a slightly greater remove, so also does, uh, arises from, from synchronized neural firing, um, uh, the gravitation across the world's musics toward pitch arrays, that is to say scales, related through small integer ratios. The asymmetrical division of the octave characteristic of these pitch arrays, that is their division of the octave into unequal smaller intervals, is less directly explained. We can at least say that it is clearly connected to the tonal encoding of certain pitches as more central than others, another pervasive default feature of the world's musics. In this way, it may be a basic outgrowth of the hierarchic cognition that stands behind pitch combinatoriality in the first place. Such tonal encoding is in turn related to the astonishing human capacity to relativize pitch, witnessed in our ability to recognize a simple melody at the same time, uh, as the same when it is reproduced at different pitch levels, or indeed to produce it ourselves at different pitch levels. Though its mechanism remains mysterious, it's not inconceivable that this ability appeared as an outgrowth of the folding of discrete pitch processing into the more ancient ability to produce and perceive similarities of prosodic shape regardless of pitch level. Here then, in summary, is what offloaded, de-differentiated prosodic patterns may have led to. A systematizing within culture of some fundamental perceptual aspects of pitch and a spinning out from them of new perceptual schemas. Discrete pitch processing, discrete pitch processing is like Deacon's symbolic leap in that it involved a recoding of the earlier prosodic intonational structures so as to mark their governance according to a newly perceived system. It is like his symbolic leap also in its introduction of a new combinatorial mode of cognition. In my view, it introduced this combinatorial pitch systematics into older emotive prosodic patterns, productively merging these two aspects of frequency perception, the one analog and the other digital in nature. Nowhere here, however, is there any sign of the referential semantics that drives Deacon's language epicycle. Instead, the discrete pitch epicycle, like the entrainment one, broached its cognitive formalism through a wealth of transmitted information without referentiality. It posed, like entrainment, complex informational hierarchies whose connections to the world lay in the motional and emotional states of the body and, and, uh, of the body and of old and new structures in the brain. In this way, it was from the first both a profoundly embodied and a complexly conceptual experience. The advent of the new combinatoriality of language and pitch may be traceable in technological advances, just like the more general hierarchic cognition of entrainment. Something like it is marked in the appearance of composite tools, artifacts joining components into a unified implement fulfilling a new distinct function, such as st a stone blade hafted onto a wooden handle. These composite tools seem to appear sporadically alongside the new Levallois operational sequences as much as 300,000 years ago, though the evidence for this is rare, very rare, and quite contested. Uh, certainly, combinatorial tools were not widespread in any case before the last 100,000 years or so, the period that witnessed the coalescing of language and music. Hierarchic and combinatorial formalism, information-rich but non-semantic expression, Deep connections to emotional and emotional centers of the brain and to the bodily experiences of pattern sequencing and material affordance. All these general features of human music were in place after diverse, lengthy prehistories, at least by the middle upper Paleolithic boundary, 40 to 50,000 years ago. Some of them had given rise to their own systematic informational dynamics. 
But what has become in all of this of my starting point, the ineffability of music? I want to dwell on this by way of conclusion. Over the last few decades, archaeologists have amassed more and more evidence tracing a move among our hominin ancestors away from a sociality essentially like that of present-day monkeys and apes and toward modern human modes. For Clive Gamble, summarizing this evidence for 500,000 years of hominins in Europe, this comes down to the expanding capacity to think at a distance. From a sociality performed from the bottom up as, as a sequence of face-to-face -face encounters, that is, a sociality of co-presence, limited to online thinking, there grew the ability to extend social experience through space and time. This cognitive release from proximity was, like all hominin sociality, also a cognizing of material ecological engagements. The sticks that might be gathered tomorrow or the hippopotamus that might be hunted next month came into imaginative view. Gamble and many others have precisely tracked the broadening movements of hominins across landscapes the ever wider exploitation of the material affordances, and eventually the circulation of materials from one group to another. All these demonstrate the exploding range of the human mind released from co-presence. They signal the capacity to think things not present to the senses, to think offline, to envision other places and the other social groups in them, even to imagine things that never were. The anthropologist Morris Bloch, uh, for the anthropologist Morris Bloch, this capacity to imagine other worlds, as he puts it, is the sure symptom of modern human sociality. This is because it reveals a double structuring, at once from the bottom up, in the ancient manner, and from the top down. The bottom up structuring we share with all social animals. Since it emerges from the transactions of co-presence, Bloch calls it the transactional social. The top-down structuring is unique to us and perhaps to a few earlier species of hominins. Neanderthals seem to have evinced it in some modest degree. It starts from offline imagining, but its characteristic gesture is the creation of essentialized social roles assigned to individuals and groups. Such roles exist separately from the people inhabiting them. We each of us take on several or many at once. I'm a professor, a musicologist, a 2011 Schulman lecture, to name a few professional ones that apply to me just now. These roles transcend the co-present identities we structure through moment-to-moment -moment transactions. Bloch names this distinctively human mode of sociality the transcendental social. The essentialized roles of the transcendental social are tokens in imagined systems. The transcendental role of a tribal elder, for example, implies a system of roles such as transcendental junior and transcendental ancestor. The role of professor implies a system including transcendental entities such as student, university, and so on. Given their imaginative sources, such roles mark always the extension of cognition beyond the reach of sensible perception of what is available to co-presence. For Bloch, this extension is finally the source of all transsensual percepts of what we might loosely term metaphysics. Religion, as a pervasive human construct, springs automatically from the transcendental social once the double nature of human sociality takes shape. But note that it does so as an expression of cognized distance ordered according to categorical and hierarchic systems extended through space and time. We can't miss here the congruency of the transcendental social with the systematic cognition basic to both language and music. Transcendental percepts take their meanings from larger systems and simultaneously create those systems, like symbols and pitches creating their places in larger contexts. 
Here is where the emergence of new cognitive patterns I've described in music and language might intersect with the advent of supersensible percepts and spirituality. Here's where the very formalism of cognition, aboriginally built into both music and language, connects to the distinctive social structuring of human modernity. The joining of this view with the gradual hominin release from proximity brings dramatic implications. We see, looking backwards now across a long expanse of hominin coevolution, socio-material interactions narrowing in their range toward the asymptote of sheer co-presence and mimetic immediacy. What we do not see along the way is any breaking point, any revolution of behavior separating a human from a pre-human way of being in the world. The closest we come to such demarcations are the phase transition-like shifts to multi-level and combinatorial cognition. These are, as I've suggested, of huge consequence, but they are not in themselves revolutionary. Instead, they seem to have acted more subtly, diverting the emergence of an already complex suite of behaviors in new directions and toward new emergences. The line stretching back across them, back from modern transcendental apperceptions, let us say, for example, gods and the musical ineffable, these lines stretch unbroken to co-presence and narrow ecological affordance. There's no Rubicon along the way between the gesture calls of our ancestors and modern musicking and speaking. No deep division separating those animals shaped by habit and material affordance from us. We've only folded distance and complex systems into these ancient modes of experience. I said before that mine is not an argument for biological determinism, and I trust this will now be clear. Nevertheless, the history of biocultural coevolution and its emergent systems is not without its momentum and its vectors, as we've seen. These propel us in directions that express themselves within local ideological and cultural frames, and university humanists, at least, revel in the analysis of these localisms. But the play on us of the broadest historicity remains, the play that presents to us, for example, a material embodiment of music joined to an immaterial extension of it in a manner that seems enduringly and inevitably ineffable. The play of this deep history continues to direct, gently but sweepingly, the agency we conceive as subject only to much more specific constraints. If I have, beyond tracing a certain deep historical narrative, wished to urge anything here today, it is that humanists join together with scientists in beginning to take account of this continuity. Thank you very much. This lecture was presented as part of the Distinguished Shulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities, established to honor Robert Shulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities. The 2011 Shulman Lectures were organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar, Evolution of Beauty, a wide-ranging philosophical and scientific inquiry into the evolution and roles of beauty in the human and natural worlds. The course was co-taught by Jonathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of Philosophy, and Richard Prum, William Robertson Co., Professor of Ornithology, Ecology, and Evolutionary Biology. Professor Tomlinson spoke on February 3, 2011, at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center.